Now podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now for your host, Paul Marquis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 184 of the Ortho Eval Pal podcast. I am your host, Paul Marquis, and today we're going to be talking about long thoracic nerve palsy. Now, we'll be discussing some of the signs and symptoms of long thoracic nerve palsy, going through some of the different causes of it. We'll do a little review of a clinical exam of a patient with a long thoracic nerve palsy. We will be talking about diagnostic imaging and when it's indicated how to evaluate that patient, and then we'll review some conservative treatment and what to avoid when treating patients who have long thoracic nerve palsy and so much more. But if you don't mind holding just for a moment, we are going to hear a word from our sponsors. Did you know that over 90% of foot and ankle problems are caused by a tight calf muscle? Introducing the Easy Slant, a durable, adjustable, and portable calf stretching device. The Easy Slant was designed to increase stretching compliance and get you back on your feet and feeling better faster. So if you work with patients seeking to ease or avoid foot pain or clients who want to improve their athletic performance, look no further. Visit EasySlant.com to learn more or order yours today. Enter coupon code OEP for a 10% discount on your first Easy Slant. Welcome back. So... For some reason, you know, when we think about long thoracic nerve palsy, we have this real vivid image of a, of a picture that you've seen when you were in college studying, you know, the shoulder complex and the, the scapula thoracic region, and it's, it sticks with you. You know, everybody seems to remember what a long thoracic nerve palsy is and what a winging scapula looks like, and, um, but, but sometimes it is, you know, it's certainly not common to see this and it can somewhat be difficult to you know diagnose and can be challenging sometimes and then treating these can be also very challenging because it requires a lot of patience and so we'll talk a little bit about you know the path of that long thoracic nerve today and then we'll talk about different sources of injury and whatnot um, so the long thoracic nerve is a motor nerve only okay it originates from c5 c6 c7 levels of the cervical spine and you need to remember this, that C5 and C6 can pass anterior to the middle scalenes. It can go through the medial scalene. It can also um, go between the medial and posterior scalenes. So those are all different areas where you can get a little bit of a quote-unquote impingement to that nerve. Um, after that, the C5 and C6 merge with C7 once C7 has passed um, by the medial scalene, okay? So once combined, they make the long thoracic nerve, which passes over the second rib and then down the lateral th thorax uh, to the serratus anterior muscle. It's a very, very long nerve, okay? So that's one of the reasons why it makes it so susceptible to injury. So you need to remember that. How is the long thoracic nerve injured? Well, one of the most common ways that people develop problems with the long thoracic nerve is with some sort of a traction type of injury. We see this often with overhead athletes, volleyball uh, players, people who uh, pitch and do like a windmill type of pitch. Uh, we, we see this uh, with people sometimes who may uh, have a stretch to the arm while it's elongated and sometimes there's trauma associated with it. So you can develop direct trauma to the nerve 
And, uh, you know, with a scapular fracture, or clavicular fracture, sometimes uh, this nerve will be damaged, you know, during a surgical procedure. And you can even see this with long, you know, compression uh, type injuries to the area like, you know, wearing a or carrying a heavy backpack. You can also develop some spasming in that middle scalene, okay? And as a result, you'll have some compression on the nerve. And so a lot of tightness. So, you know, you need to take a look at their posture and see if there's something contributing there. You can also develop this from a, an aggressive lateral flexion of the neck. Like I just uh, recently saw somebody who had a long thoracic nerve palsy who was struck in the side of the head with a soccer ball and there was a very quick lateral jarring of the neck and uh, started to develop some light scapular winging, some weakness in the shoulder, tingling in the arm, and some other cervical spine symptoms. Um, but, you know, it really overstrained that long thoracic nerve because of that aggressive lateral flexion. And then it's also possible to develop a virus in that long thoracic nerve. We've seen this happen in other motor nerves before, and uh, you end up with a pretty significant weakness as a result. So when you are evaluating somebody with a long thoracic nerve palsy, the, the most classic sign is that winging of the scapula, where that medial border is just sticking right out there. Now, when the scapula is out of position, so is the glenoid. Okay, so it's, this is very important to remember. When you see a patient who comes in and they can't flex that arm maybe more than 60, 70, 80 degrees, that may not be a, a rotator cuff issue. It may not be an impingement issue. It may, you know, it, it could be just because that glenohumeral joint is just not in a good position. When that glenoid is not positioned nicely in the quote-unquote plane of the scapula, things aren't going to function well. Remember, we've done some uh, podcasts about active and passive insufficiency and some videos about active and passive insufficiency. If that rotator cuff musculature is not in a good position, it's either too elongated or too shortened, it is not going to act well to compress the humeral head into the glenoid and to elevate the arm very well. So active and passive insufficiency really become a player here because that scapula is not in a good position. Now, not all long thoracic nerve injuries cause a very noticeable winging of the scapula, okay? So what I do when I'm somewhat suspicious, you know, somebody comes in like this young lady in the video that I'm going to uh, uh, leave for you folks in the show notes today, you know, she's a young lady, she's 22 years old, um, and obviously doesn't have a rotator cuff tear, and you know, she's in fairly good shape, but there are some people who are maybe slightly obese and you cannot see that scapula winging very well. And, you know, you can have significant dysfunction of the shoulder and arm with just a mild winging of the scapula and loss of scapular stability. So what I usually do at this point is I will take my hand and I will hold the scapula down and have them elevate the arm, both in abduction and in flexion. Then I will let go of that scapula and have them do it over again. And if there is a noticeable increase in range of motion while I'm holding that scapula in place, uh, then I'm suspicious that they have a scapular instability issue, and oftentimes it's related to that long thoracic nerve. So if you want to see a great demonstration of this, make sure you check out the video in the show notes because I have one there with this young lady, and um, it is very noticeable once you stabilize that scapula. So it's also a good idea to get a neurological evaluation 
Uh, for this patient, you know, uh, an EMG is important to remember if you've had a nerve injury and it's acute, you kind of want to wait three to four weeks. The EMG results will um, prove to be a little more uh, specific and a little bit better and give you better results. And then it's important to periodically do those EMGs, you know, every two or three months down the road to see if there's improvement with the conductivity of that nerve. Um, sometimes an MRI is indicated because uh, if you suspect some direct damage or compression to the nerve uh, or you know maybe a tumor or something like that, then an MRI can really help tease that out. So you have your patient with a long thoracic nerve palsy. They have a winging scapula. They have loss of shoulder range of motion. They have dysfunction. They have pain. How do you treat this conservatively? Well, First of all, what you want to do is avoid impingement activities. So don't push these people really hard into flexion and abduction and try to have them work through this really compensated motion, okay? So I like to just keep them in the positions that they're comfortable in and really try to activate the serratus and the the rhomboids and the rotator cuff and try to work on some scapular retraction. Sometimes I'll place the patient, um, you know, supine and then what that does is it stabilizes that scapula okay while that scapula is in a good position then i may do activities like resisted internal external rotation flexion extension maybe horizontal ab and adduction while they're in that supine position i may also have them do some alphabet spelling just to help improve their proprioception while they're in that position I also like to use NMES or Russian stimulation along that medial border of the scapula. And you will see this in the video also. We do some, uh, I'll actually add another video where we demonstrate how the patient's active range of motion is with and without the NMES. And it really helps. So once they are getting that those rhomboids to contract and maybe they're getting a little bit of carryover into that serratus and the scapula is in a better position, they can now flex and abduct and internally and externally rotate the shoulder better. And so I may have them do some exercises while the stem is activated and on. Okay, so that's uh, very interesting to watch and it can be very helpful in re-educating some of those muscles to work better. I also like to do a little of, a little bit of taping, so I like to use Luco tape, and we will tape that medial border of that scapula down to help hold it into a better position. I often will do taping at the end. So we've done our treatment, we've placed them in a good position, we've worked on activating the rotator cuff and the periscapular muscles, and they're all done therapy. I will then tape that scapula into a good position, and oftentimes it just gives them a real good sense of relief, the arm doesn't fatigue too much, and they actually can go home and, and function better with the tape on. So, you know, trying to get the uh, the periscapular muscles activated also, uh, you know, when they're in a prone position. So doing things like thumbs up exercises or Y's and T's while engaging the periscapular muscles is really important. Now, when doing, when you're progressing then into a serratus punch, if you do it too early, it's gonna be difficult because the scapula is just not gonna to wanna to sit in a good position. But if you're trying to activate it and you're ready to start doing serratus punches, I like to do these on an inclined bench or a plinth that is up about 30 degrees. And what you do is you take that shoulder and bring it to about 110 to 120 degrees of flexion. And that's when you start to do your punch. That's when your serratus anterior is 
uh, in its most optimal position to activate and to work and to stabilize. So I like to get them in that position, especially if they're on their back and they can get that stability of the table behind them. Um, I will then progress them from there into some weight-bearing activities. I like to do wall crosses where they are standing diagonal to a wall and they have a little ball in the palm of their hand and the hand is wide open and they're making little crosses or maybe going through the alphabet while bearing weight on that arm at that plane of the scapula position while trying to activate the serratus while doing it. And that really works well. I then will put these people into weight-bearing positions. So we may do things like planks, uh, mini push-ups from a, a wall, then maybe progressing onto a, a table, and then getting into a modified uh, push-up position on a, on a table with the knees. And then uh, I'll get them into a quadruped position, have them do some serratus punches. And uh, while I am doing some... Uh, giving them some feedback from all positions. So they're having to stabilize with that shoulder and the hips while they're in the quadruped position. Now, some people who are really, really active and need to use that arm, some folks can do really well with a stabilization type shirt. So there are shirts out there that you can put on, they're super tight, and you can put a piece of Velcro right over that scapula and strap it down so you get just that little extra stability while you're using your arms, especially if you're doing a lot of activity out in front of you. That can give you a little bit more stability and less impingement to the shoulder, okay? So, uh, you know, that's something you could look into. They're usually pretty pricey, but they can be helpful uh, on the right person, uh, you know, who is pretty active. Well, folks, I know I gave you a whole bunch of information there. One of the most important things that I probably could tell you about treating long thoracic nerve palsy is that you have to have patience, okay? It can take one to two years for this to improve. I generally will see some improvement with them as we go along, but then you may plateau. If you plateau, that's okay, all right? Give your patient some home exercises. Recheck them in a month. Maybe, you know, once a month and just keep rechecking, add some exercises and it can take a long time for that nerve to start to activate and to stabilize. So I would give them a whole series of exercises. You don't necessarily need to see them in the clinic all the time, but early on I like to see them so that we can really get them engaged and activated a little bit better. So um, again, have a lot of patience and, uh, and take your time with this. They do generally get better. Now, if they don't get better, um, obviously we've talked about this. They can always have surgery. And I've actually seen um, a patient in the past who just did not show improvement whatsoever. So she had a procedure that basically anchored the medial border of the scapula down. She did very, very well coming right out of surgery and um, progressively did better. Ended up having a very functional shoulder with full range of motion and um, did very well. But these are, uh, you know, far and few in between. And if they don't get better conservatively, that's always an option. Um, so, folks, thank you so much for uh, listening to today's show. I hope you uh, learned a little bit about long thoracic nerve palsy. I know it's one of those common nerve injuries that we we already kind of know a lot about. Um, but again, you know, take your time treating these folks. And if you uh, are interested in some downloadable shoulder courses. 
Uh, please check out the links in the show notes where I have done some courses, six to seven hour courses on shoulder dysfunction. You can check out the agendas and uh, see what we have for topics. And if it's something that interests you, just go ahead and uh, click and follow and uh, we will uh, get you a downloadable course as soon as possible. So folks, thank you again so much for listening and have a great week. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there.